I invite you to look with me to the Old Testament prophet Micah today. It's Father's Day. What Father's Day does for me is it transports me somewhat to my childhood. And I think about what it was like being a child in the DeFrancia household. I won't go into all the details, but with seven kids and five of them sisters, so it's five on two most of my life and my growing up years. Uh, it was quite the experience. And though we had some real struggles as a family, um, we did. We struggled through economically, my parents did. Uh, we struggled through a number of crises growing up. I remember the, I can't forget the day when I was 10 years old, my father came out from what we called the, the cellar, which was actually the same floor as where my bedroom was, and I was sitting watching TV, and my father came out of the cellar door, and he was, he was a big man. He was about 6'2". He's a mountain of a man, and I was just 10, and, and he was holding his chest, and he was crying. And back then, we called that a nervous breakdown. And I'll never forget that day and how that changed our world and how my father had to leave his job and how it threw our family into chaos and struggle. So there were times when it was difficult and stressful. I try to compare my childhood all those years ago or my adolescence, which was had its own turbulence to it, with the current world that our young people walk through. And I cannot recall the levels of cultural angst caused by such deep uncertainty. Now, there's always been issues that create anxiety and angst and difficulty. I don't think any generation, and people could disagree with me on this, but I don't think any generation has specifically more anxiety-producing events than any other generation. I do think there's a difference when and a culture and a, and a community turns to God in the midst of those rather than turning to ourselves, which is what now is what we do. Or I think about that, or I think about what feels like the swift secularization and marginalization of the church. And I don't know, but I've given the last three-plus decades of my life to this. And I watch what's happening. And that could be challenging. Or I look at the destabilization of just about every institution that we have grown to depend upon for stability. And that produces an unsettledness. It, just, it seems like unheard of for me. And as I look at my life, it seems like, and maybe it's because of my age, it seems like I'm much more acutely aware of the unsettledness, the anxiety, the anxiousness. But then I hear these words, from Pastor John Tyson, which I heard this week. He said, I'm alive during one of the greatest declines in the Western church. Praise God. 
Now, I want you to think about what he's saying. I'm alive during one of the greatest declines in the Western church. Praise God. I translate it this way. This is our time. This is my time. I'm alive during this time. To be able to have the privilege of being alive during this time. To be able to walk into this day as the person God desires me to be. And that's why this summer we're going to move in and out of some of the prophets in the Old Testament. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament were doing one of two things. They were either anticipating the time when the Babylonians would come in and capture them, would disrupt them, would destroy their time. They were pointing to that. Or they were talking right in the midst of that experience where they had been yanked from their homes. Everything was destabilized. And so these prophets are speaking about this life of ours. None of us really have been yanked from our homes and forced to go live somewhere else like they were. But these prophets were speaking into that kind of reality. The world that they lived in deconstructed just about everything they thought offered them stability and hope, including their faith. And yet, these prophets give language, if you will, They give language that can help us tether ourselves to God who gets us, number one, and understands the disorientation that a seemingly unhinged world creates for us. And maybe we can get some handles on what it means to live as his people in a world like ours. My hope is that these messages and these prophets are going to offer us anchoring points. Anchoring points in a world where it looks like or feels like the anchors have broken free and we are adrift in an angry sea. That's what sometimes it feels like. Unpredictable waters waiting to drown us. So we're going to turn to the God who the writer to the Hebrews describes as this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So where do we start? Well, if you want to take out your phone, this is one of the few times I would give you permission to start doing some searching. But if you wanted to, go to Amazon, and I want you to search. This is where we're going to start. Micah 6.8. If you go to Amazon and you search Micah 6.8, what you're going to discover is what I'm going to call t-shirt territory. All right? You search Micah 6.8, and you discover some of the most famous words of the Old Testament And there you will find t-shirts and tapestries and mugs and magnets and posters and plaques. It is one of the most popular, commercialized verses of Scripture that you could find on Amazon. You can get anything you want. You can get a bumper sticker for your car. You can get a little pendant that has has the saying on it. You can get that magnet for your refrigerator to hold up those 15 papers. You can get whatever you want, Micah 6.8. Look at it. It's all over the place. But it's one thing to buy the t-shirt. It's another thing to live the life. Micah chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And now the prophet speaks. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. What's going on? Seems like kind of a strange passage of Scripture. But what's actually happening here is if you look at it and you pull back on Micah chapter 6, what's actually happening is that God is taking his people to court. Metaphorically, of course, but God is taking his people to court. Now, why is that happening? He's, he's doing that because of dishonest business practices, strong-arm tactics in the market, marketplace. He's doing that because of the idolatry that was running rampant in their world. No matter how blatant and how severe. And, and so there's this place where God's like saying, you are out of control because you are in complete control of your lives. So what we read in part is their response to God. What they do is they begin to ask questions. They begin to get a little defensive. And they're saying, so God, what is it that you really want from us? What are you really looking for, God? And they begin to make exaggerated claims and they begin to ask hyperbolic religious questions, even to the point where they say, should we just go ahead and sacrifice our own children? That's a great message for Father's Day. They were just being extreme and absurd, actually. What does the Lord want from me? What would you put down? How would you answer that question? What does the Lord want from me? When you look at the answer, it's shocking. Because here's the deal. What thing does the Lord want from me? He wants no thing from me. No thing from you at all. God does not want one thing from us, religious or otherwise. God wants us. He wants you and me. So the wrong question is, is what does the Lord want from me? The right question is, is what kind of person am I becoming? Ralph Waldo Emerson has had these words attributed to him. What you are shouts so loudly in my ear, I can hardly hear what you are saying. What you are shouts so loudly in my ear, I can hardly hear what you are saying. You see, that's why this question is crucial. What kind of person am I becoming? The answer comes from the prophet's call and response. We see these questions, and then verse 8 is the prophet's response to it all. It's like a call and response. 
The question is posed, what does the Lord require of you? And the answer, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, the, the, the theme of this series is prophets and promises. When we read these words, it doesn't feel like these are words of promise. They feel like words of challenge, and that they are. But they carry the potential of such great promise from God. Because tethering ourselves to God, to the God of promise, is found in being a person who desires what God desires, whatever realities we face in life. So can we feel the weight of this question? What does the Lord require of you? And quite literally, it'd be translated, what does God desire of me day after day after day? I'm reminded of a question later to another group of people, hundreds of years later, as Peter the Apostle writes to a group of people that are going through very much so some similar stressors of being a, a, a distributed people, the diaspora of the early Christian church where they were being um, um, persecuted and, and distributed all over the empire. He says this to them. He says, with all that stuff that's going on, what kind of people ought you to be? Second Peter 3.11. And that's a question we need to ask over and over and over. But I don't want you to mishear what I'm saying. I don't want you to hear that there's not something for us to do when I say that God doesn't ask no thing from us. It's not about something we're not to do. It's not about being passive. Because what we do matters. In his recent book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, highly recommend the book. Be a good summer read. He says this, the things we do do something to us. They shape the people we become. The things we do do something to us. They shape the people we become. So the words of Micah 6.8 are words of becoming, about becoming these kind of people. These very words that we think about actually are words that are engraved in the alcove of religion in the Congressional Library in Washington, D.C. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Maybe all of our national leaders need to go hang out at the alcove of religion, right? In the Congressional Library. But the things we do do something to us. They shape the people we become. What kind of people do we want to become? Well, first of all, what do we need to do to become a person, a people who is a source of good from God? To act justly. Now, when we start throwing around the word justice or judgment, most often we're talking about someone else. We don't really want to throw that word around necessarily when we talk about ourselves, right? But the nature of this word here is not first punitive. This isn't about the punitive nature, but rather it's not punitive in nature primarily, but restorative in nature. It is not simply justice that demands a verdict. It is justice that's desiring things to be made right. It's not just the pound of flesh. Give me my pound of flesh in judgment for wrong committed. 
And in some ways, it's not just about doing isolated right things. The word act here, act justly, actually has the idea of that which is done frequently. So it suggests something that's ongoing. And that word is specifically in the Old Testament used most often to what God does frequently. So the prophet points out more than simply meeting the measure of the law. So much more than that. I think it could be said that Jesus defined what this was about. You know it as the golden rule, Acts chapter, or Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. It's interesting to me, whenever we hear Jesus say that, this is the law and prophets, whenever we hear Jesus say that, he's always talking about this radical idea of others and of love and of doing justice. With those words, Jesus defines what Micah means. How do you want people to treat you? What makes you joyful? And how important are respect and kindness and fairness and helpfulness to you? It is this picture of giving goodness to others that you would want given to you. In his book, the, a church called Tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. Scott McKnight writes this. He says, To do good, or tov, requires us to resist what is not good, what is bad and evil and corrupt. Over and over, the Bible teaches us to pursue goodness and turn from evil. As we see from Jesus, though, this is not for our sake, but for the sake of others, leaving a large birth of grace for others, not from obligation, but as a result of identification with Jesus, being those people who become a source of good from God. Now think about that today, that you and I are called to be a source of good to the world from God, becoming that kind of person. Well, then... There's also the thought of becoming a person who is an expression of the love of God. He says, love mercy. Some would say, well, I live by the golden rule. But is just living by the golden rule alone enough? Justice for justice's sake is not really justice at all. It needs something more. George Robinson put it this way. The man who does good but does not love, is not a good man. The man who does good, but does not love, is not a good man. He pretends to be, but would be different if he could. That's a powerful statement. If we were to literally translate this second requirement that the prophet shares love mercy, it would sound something like this. Be passionate about loving others the way you have been loved. Because the word for love here is actually used sometimes for the word appetite. And it describes passion. It describes God's passion. In Jeremiah 31, it describes God's passion for us. And that great word mercy, hesed, is that Hebrew term of the way God acts towards us in love. Jesus bundled it all together in John 13 when he says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. 
Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So it's, it's, the question is, how is my appetite for loving others as Jesus has loved? How is my appetite? Back to John Mark Homer, he writes this. Love is the desire not to take, but to give. Just pause there. I know there's a larger quote. But, but the world is divided into two camps. Two types of people. There's givers and there's takers. Which are you going to be? That's what, that's what we're really being asked here. Givers or takers? I don't know about you, but sometimes it's a whole lot easier to be a taker than it is to be a giver. But that's what we're being asked here. Comer goes on. Love is the desire not to take but to give. It's the settled intention of the heart to promote good in the life of another. I love that statement. To see the beauty inherent in another's soul and help them see it as well. Who in your life, who in your life needs you, needs you to see in them the, the, that, that, that onboard beauty of the image of God that's in them? That's what this is about. Who in your life needs you, needs me to see in them the beauty that God has made them to be and then to help them see it by seeking to promote good in the life of another? Would you imagine what would happen? Would you imagine what would happen if I would take seriously to love mercy? You would do that. We would do that. You see, Micah is reminding us, he's reminding these people to be the kind of person in a fractured and frazzled and fear-based and broken world that actually makes a difference. Because that's his world. That's who he's writing to. Do I want to become this person? But it doesn't begin necessarily with me doing something again. It starts at what God has done. Look what it says in Romans chapter 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you recognize, do I recognize the love of mercy that has been extended to us by God? Do you know that today? Do I know that today? That, that God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, has extended to us the love of mercy. Act justly. Love mercy, he says. Where does that come from? Do you see that that says what God loves? That God loves loving us. That God has an appetite for loving us. That God is passionate for loving us. That God loves loving us. Nothing brings more pleasure to God than loving us. You say, how can you make such a statement for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But it starts at, for God so loved the world. My friend, hear that today. You hear nothing else today. God loves loving you. Hear that. Receive that. On this of all days, hear that. That God loves loving you. He loves loving me. And because we're made in the image of God, already within us, what's already on board is the capacity to be the person who loves mercy as well. And especially, my friends, the power of the Holy Spirit in relationship with Christ, we can tap into that onboard capacity and then choose the highest and best good for another. Love mercy. Lastly, become that person growing in relationship with God. And this is the key to all of it. In fact, when you look at Micah, it kind of ascends in order of priority. Act justly. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. The most important word in this, believe it or not, is not humbly, but it's walk. It's the, it's the Hebrew term halakha. And it actually speaks about the idea of ethics. And what are ethics? Ethics are the acts and the actions we take that are rooted in the things we value most. That's the Jeff de Franza layman's translation of ethics. Right? Micah's audience saw religion as a badge of honor and righteousness. But what this prophet is saying is it's not about just having the religious acts lined up, but rather this idea, this halakha, this walk, is about movement of one's life. It's about, it's about that which is the direction of your life, that which is setting the tone for your life. The question is not if I am being religious. It's not the question the question is, am I walking humbly with God? That's the question. And what that means is, that means submission, and that means faith, and that means trust in God. And it ultimately means, and especially as this prophet is speaking to the people he's speaking to, it means tearing down the high places in my heart that are actually the idols of my life. What are the things in your life that are more important to you than God? That's an idol. What is more important to me than God? Sometimes, sometimes our own families can be idols. Sometimes our jobs can be idols. Sometimes our possessions can be idols. Sometimes the way we want others to perceive us can be idols. And here's the truth. Here's a little truth that we really don't ever really want to talk about. We all struggle with idols. We all battle with that. But here's the beauty of this. We can have a different shift in our hearts and walk humbly with God. There's only one other place where the word humbly is used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible, and that's Proverbs 11.2, which says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. And so there's this piece that this is really important. And how does that translate to our lives? Well, Philippians 2 says, In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. 
Walking humbly with God elevates others, even as we elevate God. Last autumn, I preached a message entitled Humility in the World. And I made this statement. It has always been this way for God's people. This strange, countercultural, beautiful mandate of placing the best interests of others, especially those weaker than us, before our own. It is one of the clearest demonstrations of holiness, sanctification in action, and gives integrity and form to our claims of loving God before a watching world. And without this, as the Bible says, our words about faith are nothing more than a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. Humility, as surrender to God, transforms our ambition from individualized demands to Christ-like desire. This is how Lee Eclove put it. Humility is not easy to fake. Those who come boldly to God's throne of grace come right-sized. When we really worship God, we get right-sized in the, in, in the face before the Almighty God. We get right-sized. He gets right-sized as well. And he says they have nothing to prove but the mercies of Christ. You know what? This sounds like so far beyond my ability. And it is. It's beyond my ability, your ability. But I'm reminded of the words from Dr. Bob Scott. He shared with me a long time ago. Two 21st century words. Sovereignty and grace. Sovereignty and grace. Sovereignty tells me that God can, and grace tells me that God wants to. So that is the God we are to submit to. This is the God we are to walk with, humbly walk with. This is the God who can shape us into these kind of people. But best of all, this is the God who wants to shape us into these kind of people. That's the good news. That's the place of promise. That's the bit of power. So if we begin to think about the God who wants to make us these kind of people, if we begin to take Micah 6, 8 and let those words do something to us, imagine what we can become. It's been debated who has said this. Everyone from Stephen Covey and his seven habits to, to Emerson himself and others have all, all claimed, I've seen pastors who claim authority of this statement, others, I don't know who actually said it. I just have heard it a lot, and you have too, perhaps. It goes like this. Sow a thought, and you reap an action. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. You become a person. What would happen if we sowed this? Act justly. Love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Our worship team is going to come. And as they're coming, you know, I remember um, a couple Christmases ago, my daughter Krista got me, uh, uh, I got her a C.S. Lewis book and she got me a C.S. Lewis book. And um, I love the way C.S. Lewis has this habit of reducing down 
biblical truth, if you will. He has a knack of offering biblical truth with surgical-like precision. And he talks about this idea that we're talking about today, about who we become. And he talks about the fact that we as Christians often have this idea of morality as a kind of bargain with God, where if we keep a bunch of rules, it all works out a certain way. That if we keep a bunch of rules, then, you know, we're going to be okay. But he goes on and he says, I don't think that's the way it is. And this is what C.S. Lewis said. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you to part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. He goes on. I know that's what you have there. Just leave that there. But then he says, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing inside of you, either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or one who's in a constant state of war with God and others. When I read those words, they're, they're amazingly beautiful and horrifically fearful. But here's the beauty of it. They're amazingly beautiful when I recognize that God has given me grace to choose to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with my God. That I can't do this without Him. But in relationship with Him and in the power of the Spirit, this offers me promise to be the kind of person our unhinged world needs. The kind of man my family needs. The kind of brother my brothers and sisters in Christ need. The kind of person who desires what God desires. That, my friends, is worth becoming that person. So today I invite you to stand as we begin this series. And as we sing together, I want to invite you to seek God, to make you, to make me, to be the person who desires most what he wants. What does God require to be the person who acts justly and loves mercy and walks humbly with our God? Thanks be to God.